0: We come to you, O Lord, believing the promises that you've given us concerning your Word and your Spirit. We believe that this is your Word, the absolute truth, the historical record that you have revealed through the inspired writer of Scripture, that your Spirit inspired inspired these words and that they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We ask, O Lord, that you would use this text to equip us, to teach us through the help of the Holy Spirit, that he would guide us into all the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we were together in 2 Kings, we considered Azariah's 52-year reign as king in Judah, uh, here in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. The king's narrator doesn't seem to be too interested in Azariah. He only gets seven verses of coverage and all but Verse five are the usual formulas. From Second Kings we learned that Azariah, also known as Isaiah, was generally orthodox in his religious policy. He did well enough to see receive the general commendation, but was another of Judah's yes only kings. Verses three. And 4, here in chapter 15, he did right in the sight of the Lord, only the high places were not taken away. And the Lord struck him with leprosy to the day of his death. Now we had to go to 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, to discover why the Lord struck uh, Azariah with leprosy, and uh, the details of his reign. The writer of Kings knows that Azariah's, uh, he knows about Azariah's attempt to burn incense in the temple, to usurp the role of the priests. Uh, he knows uh, about, uh, he knows that that's the reason that the Lord struck him with leprosy. And he knows about Azariah's uh, political uh, and military accomplishments, and he assumes his readers know about these things, but he doesn't describe them. He only mentions that Jehovah inflicted him with leprosy in Second Kings 15, 5, and then he includes a vague description of the king's restoration of Aleth to Judah in chapter 14 and verse 22. At this point in the narrative, the narrator is more interested in the kings of Israel than in Judah. Nevertheless, chapter 15 hints that Azariah's reign stands as a bastion of stability, given that five Israelite kings come and go... Throughout his 52-year reign, chapter 15, verses 8, 13, 17, 23, and 27. The contrast is clear. One long reign versus chaos and conspiracy in Israel. One long reign in Judah versus chaos and coups in the northern kingdom of Israel. The Lord is teaching us here in in our text that his word reigns even in chaotic times, and his promise to David provides hope for God's people throughout all their generations, We'll look at three things this evening, the certainty of Jehovah's prophetic word, in the first place, secondly, the signs of coming judgment, and then thirdly, the certainty of Jehovah's promise to David. First, in verses 8 to 12, the certainty of Jehovah's prophetic word. Though Israel is plunged into a long period of chaos, we might say it was a controlled chaos governed by Jehovah's word. Zechariah, verse 8, takes the throne after the death of his father, Jeroboam II, for six months. Shalom conspires and assassinates him, verse 10. Why did all of this happen? Verse 12 explains it. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel and so it was. The word of the Lord refers to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30. We've pointed to this passage many times since, that, since we dealt with that passage in 2 Kings 10, where Jehovah promised Jehu a four-generation dynasty. Shalom's conspiracy against Zechariah ended that dynasty just as Jehovah had said to Jehu. It doesn't mean that uh, Jehovah approved of Shalom's deed. It simply means that he used this evil deed to bring his sure word to pass. From an exegetical standpoint, it's the last clause of verse 12, that's so fascinating. And so it was, the narrator says. This translates a Hebrew expression that that occurs six times in Genesis chapter 1, verses 7, 9, 11, 15, 24, and 31. After God speaks the various parts of creation into existence, more familiar to us as it's commonly translated in our English versions of Genesis chapter 1, and it was so. So the clause implies that what God spoke actually came into being and remained that way. So what's more obvious than that when Jehovah promised Jehu a four-generation dynasty, that's exactly what happened. And so it was. And it was so. Because it could be no other way. Jehovah's word is that certain. And so at the outset of this account, of an exceedingly turbulent time in the northern kingdom, we are reminded that Jehovah is directing the events described for us here in chapter 15. Just as he spoke the world into existence, making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good, Jehovah spoke this history into being. And it was so. And in accordance with the work of providence, God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all his actions, he used Shalom's conspiracy against Zechariah to work out his purpose in redemptive history, in the lives of his people. The certainty of Jehovah's prophetic word. Secondly, the signs of coming judgment, in verses 8 through 38. Now, They're both internal and external signs of, of coming judgment here in 2 Kings 15. We begin with the internal signs, and the first is the blatant sin judgment pattern apparent in the five kings of Israel. As we've already noted, the primary attention here in chapter 15 goes to the five Israelite kings. The reigns of the two Judean kings, Azariah and his son Jotham in verses one to seven and 32 to 38, wrap this center section in verses eight. Through 31 dealing with the northern kings. And among the latter, among those northern kings, we can't help but notice the repeated sins of Jeroboam formula. It appears four times in the evaluations of Zechariah, verse 9, Menahem, verse 18, Pekiah, verse 24, and Pekah, verse 28. The only exception is in reference to Shalem and his one-month reign in verses 13 to 15. Of each of the other four kings, it said, he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. Not, remember, the recent uh, son of Jehoash, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, Jehoash, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, rather, verse 23, but the son of Nabat, who instituted the cult of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan, 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33. 200 years had passed since Jeroboam instigated this devious, despicable idolatry in the northern kingdom. 931. To 732 B.C. And its grip is undiminished. Its poison is lethal in the northern kingdom. When we see the sins of Jeroboam in such concentration, when we see that formula here, repeated, Again and again, four times in this 15th chapter. It only increases the tragedy and the ruin that such false worship was bringing. And one of the things that this concentration here in 1 Kings 15 of this repeated Phrase, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, serves to show us is the tenacity of sin. It shows us sin's grip upon the human heart. It shows us how sin can cling to the soul, disrupt the soul continuously. For long periods of time, and it's a reminder: Israel's continuous uh, continuation in this uh, in this sin is a reminder that only grace can break the grip of sin in our hearts. the lingering effects of Jeroboam's sin, which he made Israel's sin, can be seen in the conspiracies that jump out on us, uh, uh, at us rather, in in this uh, block of the northern kings in uh, in verses 8 through uh, 31, against Zechariah, verse 10, against Shalom, verse 14, against Pekiah, verse 25, and against Pekah. Verse 30. Some of these, uh, I'm sure you notice, were very short reigns. Six months for Zechariah. Verse 8. One month for Shalom. Verse 13. Two years for Pekiah. Verse 23. Only Menahem manages a dynasty, if we want to call it that. 12 years between him and his son, Pekiah. Chronologically, we're dealing with a little more than 20 years, about 753 to 732 BC, in which there are five kings and four conspiracies. Israel, our text is shouting at us, is plunging into ruin. If civil stability is a divine gift, It's been withdrawn from the northern kingdom. Her internal chaos is a sign that her sins have come home to roost and that an even more severe judgment is on the horizon. There are also external signs of Jehovah's coming judgment in the form of Assyria, the appearance of Pul, king of Assyria. Assyria, verse 19, the Babylonian name of Tiglath-Pileser, the third, verse 29, here during uh, Menahem's reign doesn't refer to an invasion, not yet. Rather, Menahem paid him a substantial tribute of silver in exchange for Assyrian backing of his throne. But by Pekah's time, verse 29, the silver's influence had run out. It appears from what we read here in our text, as well as uh, chapter 16, verses 5 to 9, that Pekka was an anti-Assyrian instigator in league with one of the kings of Aram, Rezin. And about 733 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser began to clamp down on Israel, taking five northern towns in his invasion, first part of verse 29. But it was worse than that. He took Gilead and Galilee, that is, all the land of Naphtali. So Assyria dominated Israel's land east of the Jordan and west and north of the Sea of Galilee. And the next king, Hosea, verse 30, is left with little more than a sphere of influence around Samaria, but it was even worse than that. The last part of verse 29 tells us, Tiglath-Pileser exiled populations from Galilee and Gilead to Assyria. This was uh, a deportation that preceded the major uh, deportation, the major exile uh, that's, uh, of Israel to Assyria that's coming in 2 Kings. And that should have opened some eyes in Israel. And What was going on in in the land, these judgments that came upon Israel, uh, internal judgments, external judgments, should have uh, been quite unnerving to the people of Israel But the invasion and the exile that occurred under Pekah shows that Israel is only one slight push away from total disaster. All of these things are signs of coming judgment, but Israel seems to pay no heed. They don't pay any attention to these preliminary signs of ruin to come. Prophet Amos, chapter 4, verse 6-12 of his prophecy shows that Jehovah sent these preliminary signs, these signals, these limited signs or judgments on Israel to awaken her and to lead her to repentance. But they were ignored. And so disaster would come. And if this is true in relation to nations, the same holds true for the church. If a church denomination equivocates and refuses to affirm biblical moral standards, for example, regarding homosexuality, is this not a sign that God is giving over his own professing people to follow their own authority. And if a church fails or refuses to discipline ministers who deny cardinal doctrines of the faith, allowing them to serve in all of their unbelief, is this not a signal that God has already given that denomination over to its own devices. The certainty of Jehovah's prophetic word, the signs of coming judgments, and finally, very briefly, the certainty of Jehovah's promise to David. The opening and closing sections of chapter 15, dealing with Azariah's and Jotham's reigns in Judah, are nearly identical both are only seven verses long, consisting primarily of standard formulas, leaving out significant details of their accomplishments found in 2 Chronicles 26 and 27, respectively. And even though, as we've said, the writer doesn't seem too interested in Judah, these two bracketing sections serve to testify that while Israel plunges into ruin, the Davidic line continues. Furthermore, it was during Jotham's reign that the prophet Micah began his ministry. Micah 1, verse 1, and he's one of the four kings that of Judah mentioned in the backdrop of Isaiah's prophetic ministry along with his father Azariah, also known as Isaiah, there in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. And these details serve to show that God's word was still active during the time of the reigns of these Judean kings. God was faithfully keeping his promise of an enduring house of David, That's the light of hope that shines in this dismal period of Israel's history. 2 Kings 8 verse 19 reminds us of this. The Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, since he had promised to give a lamp to him through his sons. Always, and that always, of course, is uh, pushes us forward. It pushes us forward to the greater Son of David, the uh, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the faithful remnant of Israel, uh, even the Northern Kingdom of Israel, found their hope. That's where Isaiah, prophet to the northern kingdom, found hope during the last days of Israel as he was prophesying. And our hope is the prophet's hope. Isaiah witnessed all of the things that are being described in chapter 15 and more during the scope of his prophetic ministry in the northern kingdom. He witnessed the anguish and contempt that God brought upon the northern towns and cities that the Assyrians attacked. But by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he could also see that in the latter time, God would make Galilee of the nations glorious again. Someday, the very place that the Assyrians conquered would become the locus of a new development in the history of redemption. In that great day, the people who walked in darkness would see a great light and rejoice in God's victory. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. For to them, a child would be born. To them, a son would be given, Isaiah 9, 6. A king would come, a king that they had always needed, who's everything that anyone could ever want in a Savior. When we consider what Israel suffered from evil king after evil king, and when we meet the Messiah who came from Galilee. We can see why Isaiah was so hopeful. Israel had been decreasing, not increasing. The land had been at war, not peace. But a new king was coming. Isaiah prophesies, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on, forevermore. And it's Jehovah who would accomplish this. It's Jehovah whose word of prophecy is certain. It's Jehovah whose uh, word of promise to David was certain. Isaiah ends that prophecy in verse 7, saying... The zeal of Jehovah Sabaoth, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to you that your word is certain, that it's absolute, that we can count on it. That you do what you say you will do. That your promises are certain. That we can rely on them. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would work in us a robust faith in your word. That we might believe your word. We might believe what you say you're going to do. That we might put our hope and our trust Uh, in your word as you have given it to us on the pages of Holy Scripture. And that knowing your word and believing your promises, we might have great hope in the dismal days of our lives when circumstances would seem one after another When things go awry, we ask, O Lord, that you would fill us with hope, especially, O Lord, fill us with hope in the prophecies that you've given us concerning our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And lift up our heads, O God, from the chaos and the trouble uh, that often fills our lives in this world. And Enable us to see Jesus enthroned in heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen.